0: Welcome to episode 56 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton
1: and Pandora Sykes. We're going to nosedive straight into the heaving mailbag. We had an interesting email from a listener called Olivia in regards to Georgina Chapman's Vogue interview, which we discussed on our live episode a couple of weeks ago, which we very much enjoyed. Thank you very much to everyone who attended. Had a very good time in the Selfish Food Hall afterwards. 37 pounds later and a stomachache. Anyway, back to Olivia's email, which was in reference to one of our topics. Choosing U.S. Vogue certainly did weave together her roles as both fashion designer and wife, which I'm sure many like you would have preferred were kept separate, but the two are intrinsically linked. The context helped dispel the often inferred, her career has got to where it has because Harvey bullied starlets to wear her clothes on the red carpet, a reductive and undermining conclusion. She was clearly able to call in favours from Hollywood, but it is not as if calling in favours or using your name is unheard of in fashion. Think Victoria Beckham and Stella McCartney. It transformed her from a two-dimensional pretty wife to a well-rounded human struggling to come to grips with her reality but determined to move forward for her children. Yes, Vogue is primarily a fashion bible but it's also a magazine that captures the zeitgeist and in a post-MeToo age where the spirit of the moment is one where women are speaking up Georgina too has the right to speak up and not be silenced because of the actions of a man. She should also be able to do so using a forum that she knows and is comfortable with and not be the subject of investigative journalism so that the mob can make their judgement of her.
0: I think that's a really interesting email. You're right, why should she have to be the subject of um, investigative journalism? I also put Dolly firmly back in her box for calling Vogue... Trade magazine. It's
1: not just a trade magazine.
0: Diana Vreeland would be rolling in her grave. It's not just a trade magazine, but many think of it as also a trade magazine. Many being Dolly. Something else from the mailbag is a petition which I signed earlier this week and shared on my Instagram stories, and I'm talking about here again in the hope that some more of you will sign it. The petition is called Justice for Nora. Nora is a 19-year-old Sudanese girl who is facing a death sentence for killing her husband, who she was forced to marry, while he raped her. This is sadly not an isolated incident in the Sudan, but there is hope that if the UN succeeds in putting pressure on the Sudan for clemency, then the plight of other women like Nora can be culturally reassessed. The change.org petition currently has over one million signatures, and it really does make a difference. Mm. I will link to the petition in the show notes. I also have a little treat for Dolly, not from the mailbag this week, but from my mother, Oh, who found an autobiography that I wrote aged Hold on, when is this? March 2003. So that is 15 years ago. So I would have been 16. So you
1: wrote your first memoir at 16? Well, it was my
0: entry into the inaugural Vogue Young Talent competition. Which... And you wrote your own autobiography? Yeah, that was one of the three entries that you had to write. I think right. I wrote something else on military jackets. another <laughs> entry. So do you remember how we were recently talking about how verbose we were? Yeah,
2: That so we'll
1: always use a long word if we yeah. use a short one. So Which this... is bad, by the way. We're saying we know it's bad.
0: So this is absolute proof of how much I used to do that. I suppose you could say that I've been making an entrance since the day I was born. (laughs) As my mother brought a whole new meaning to the expression gritting one's teeth after a mere 35 minute labor, woman my father grimacing at the vigor of my stalwart mother's hand on his remarked but i thought the chances of a baby being born in its amniotic sac were extremely rare only about one in a hundred thousand mr sykes twittered the loquacious nurse <laughs> it's supposed to be very lucky lucky gasped my father feebly his voice reverting to the shrill pitch of a prepubescent boy as he deliriously ruminated upon <laughs> whether his youngest daughter would gain a father with only one hand Being the youngest sibling in the Sykes menage, I soon realised that I'd have to fight to be heard. And so it goes. (laughs) That is hilarious. I'll send you uh, the whole thing so you can read it. Is there more? At your leisure. Oh, please please send it to me. It's a thousand-worder potted autobiography.
1: If I were to have predicted how you would have been and spoken and written at age 15, it would have been been exactly that. But (laughs) isn't that quite lovely that you still have your 15-year-old soul carrying with you? Thank you for sharing your uh, autobiography, Pandora. Well, I thought it was only fair. I had to read the whole of yours. Hashtag Spawn. (laughs) Branded partnership with Dolly Alderton. Um, Would you like me to tell you what I've been up to this week? I would love to. I have been listening to a podcast that I know is going to be so up your street called Reads Like a Four. It's a podcast that deals with criticism. And two episodes that have been so good have been Chris Mandel, who's the entertainment director of Twitter. He's so funny and he's so clever. And Laura Snapes, who is a equally clever and funny and brilliant journalist and friend of the Hilo. Hello, Laura. And both of their episodes are just great. They talk about, uh, well, if you're a journalism geek, you'll find it really interesting or a kind of celebrity geek. They talk about setting up the celebrity interview where you can and can't go, how you manage people. Um, Chris talks very engagingly about how important it is to go into an interview and make sure that you don't want to become mates with them, um, which I think is very challenging for a lot of journalists. And they talk about the kind of art of reviewing, whether there's room for things like gig reviews anymore. And I just think Read Psychophore is such a good idea for a podcast, and he is a great interviewer, the guy who does it. So that's a fab new podcast. Oh my God, have you watched A Very English Scandal?
0: No, I have not.
1: When I say you will be obsessed, it's completely made for you. It is based on the real-life story of the politician Jeremy Thorpe, who began an affair with a young stable hand called Norman Scott in the 1960s, when obviously um, homosexuality was illegal. And it's about how this secret affair tormented Jeremy Thorpe and... and, um, I actually don't know the real story to my shame. So I've resisted going on Wikipedia and, and finding it out. Don't well, it was it. a book. The, the very Scandal was a brilliant book. And I've resisted reading any more because I want to watch it unfold because it's so well done. And it's just Hugh Grant, Hugh, Grant? Hugh Grant plays Jeremy Thorpe. And he it's the best performance I've ever seen of his. He is so convincing and so funny and uh, kind of demonic and very dark and has a very... Macabre side, and actually, India Knight tweeted, and I couldn't agree with her more. She said, "The best thing that happened to Hugh Grant's acting career is his, is his prettiness going." Not Paddington Two, and Paddington I... Two, <laughs> but it feels like he's really yeah. moved into a new kind of character. Phase of his life as an actor and he's just nailing it it's really really good Alex Jennings plays opposite him who's equally as brilliant and Ben Wishaw plays his uh, younger secret lover um, it's written by Russell T Davis who is just a screenwriting legend and I just think it couldn't be more perfect tonally so please I really think you'll like it so that do on? watch it that is on BBC iPlayer I caught up with that mhm I went to go see Madame Butterfly at Glyndebourne, which is an opera by Puccini. And yeah, the I read reason your tweets covering the event. The reason I wanted to bring it up was because I realised halfway through watching Madame Butterfly um, in floods of tears. That Madame Butterfly, written in the early 1900s, is about a woman that gets ghosted. Oh, there you go. It's literally about a woman that gets ghosted. We've all been Madame Butterfly, then? So, well, Didn't she, she, kill she kills herself, yeah. Okay. But she it gets to a point where, like, in the second half, where she finds out that this naval officer who married her and impregnated her and then went away for three years, totally ghosted her, then married another woman, comes back and she says, I'm going to kill myself because of this. And his reaction is... I can't stay here, I can't think about this, the remorse of this and the guilt of this is too much for me to bear. And I just watched it and I thought, it's the same old shit in 1903, it's the same old shit now. Um, So yeah, it's... (laughs) (laughs) This week's revelation. (laughs) Um, It's just realised that I love opera um, and I find it very, very moving. But it just um, makes me realise that those stories about the evils of men sorry CJ really kind of transcend time and it's a beautiful beautiful opera so if you get a chance to go to Glyndebourne it's a real treat and I absolutely loved it my final recommendation is uh, an episode of Fresh Air which is a podcast that I love with a comedian called Tig Notaro. you might recognize her from Transparent she shot to fame in recent years because she had a number of she's been a working comedian I think for some time and a writer and she had a number of very very traumatic incidents happen in a very short space of time she was diagnosed with cancer she broke up with her long-term girlfriend and her mother died in a very short space and then I think it was very it might have been the day of or off the back of her cancer diagnosis she went to a comedy club and did this extraordinary set where she's just being completely honest and her first line is she's like hi everyone i've got cancer and it's kind it was recorded because it was it was so raw and very very funny and it was picked up and promoted by louis ck who ended up execing on one of her shows To those who are unfamiliar
0: or can't remember, Louis C.K. is an American comedian who was the subject of a number of sexual assault claims
1: mm. in recent post Me Too times. And Terry Gross really pushes her on what it was like to work with Louis CK, what she learned about working with him, how she feels about him now. It's an uncomfortable and very honest interview. Terry Gross is the same woman who pushed Greta Gowick in an interview about working with Woody Allen. She's very, very good journalistically, uh, without being kind of pushy or nasty. Tignataro also talks about finding love again in later life and uh, having two children and there's one bit of it that I found very moving where she's talking about when she met her wife how it didn't limit her or make her feel scared of commitment the world opened up to her and as someone who is a commitment phobe trying very hard every day to change that about themselves I found it very enlightening. You know when I hear people talk about their fear of uh, commitment and what will be taken away from their freedom and I to me as soon as I met Stephanie and committed to her and then married her and had Max and Finn my idea of what was out there for me in the world just grew and grew and grew and, grew and it grows every day.
0: This week I watched the whole of an Australian Netflix series called The Letdown. Have you seen the no, on this? Netflix? Initially, I resisted, as I didn't think I could face any mommy shows. For those uninitiated, the letdown reflex is what allows your breast milk to flow when your baby is feeding, so the title is a pun. This was actually really funny and smart and sweet it's a bit like *Love Sick*, another recent favorite of mine on netflix and in the words of the new york times this australian comedy blends emotional sob sessions with witty one-liners leaving you pitying and laughing at the new parents you don't have to be a new parent to enjoy it but i actually think it's brilliantly educational for anyone who hasn't had a baby and mm. thinks that you might just be having a you know little nap on maternity leave Um, it's very funny and wonderful and i am a bit obsessed with australian shows i think it's why i'm still trying to keep up with home and away so i was absolutely the target market for this show i'm also unashamedly addicted to the real housewives of cheshire it's a very good show i tweeted this and the response was seismic (laughs) turns out (laughs) some of the cleverest women i know are huge fans of T-R-H-O-C including my friend who is a reporter for the New York Times watch it before you judge me it's like a real palate cleanser if you feel a bit brow beaten by Towie the women are all older Yeah. Um, I'd say average mid 40s mm. they've all got lots of children and at least two of the women are going through divorces mm. that's the real stuff yeah. and I'd much rather Thank that you. was being put
1: out there for people to consume. And it was created and exec- produced by one of the cleverest women I know. Is it your friend? Yeah, yeah my friend Dilly, yeah. Such a name dropper. <laughs> well <laughs> no, done Dilly, but it's, it's but it is a really, yeah, um, it's really good. It often takes a lot of, of very intelligent and emotionally sensitive people to create shows as compulsive as that. Completely. Um, it's also yet another bloody guilty pleasure
0: of mine. <laughs> In more serious circles, I am left still shaken and pensive 10 days after reading a piece of journalism by a writer called mark smith for the times about a dutch man who was allowed to commit assisted suicide after suffering depression linked to his alcohol addiction mark sensitively and eloquently tells the story of mark confusing through his brother marcel now i have to say i found this article very very distressing. I didn't really agree that Mark should have been allowed to end his life via euthanasia. But then I chatted to Mark the writer and I found what he had to say really interesting. I hesitate to express an opinion either way on whether or not I think this should have been allowed to happen because Mark's family have been so impressively stoic in their suffering. They didn't want Mark to be euthanized or to leave his young children fatherless, but they somehow found it within themselves to prioritize his wishes, which is quite extraordinary when you think about it and deserves a large amount of respect, which it seems sadly they are rarely granted. As you can imagine, they've been the targets of all sorts of criticism and trolling. Mark also talks to me about how the law around euthanasia is quite confusing in the Netherlands. I don't think the euthanasia law was ever meant to cater for people like Mark, but it was allowed to happen because of the sloppy way it's been articulated in the Netherlands. For example, it talks about intolerable suffering, which is an entirely subjective idea and arguably contradictory. If the suffering was actually intolerable, wouldn't they already have killed themselves? Mark points out that in the UK, the proposed law for euthanasia is much more substantive and inflexible because it's good to know where you stand when it comes to matters of life and death, as he points out. And he also raises a really interesting point that having euthanasia as a legal possibility for the mentally ill is suggestive in and of itself, i.e. doesn't the mere existence of such a law sort of encourage the depressed to dwell on it? He ends his correspondence to me with this. What is clear is that Mark intended to resort to suicide if he hadn't been granted euthanasia. And of course, that would have come with a whole different set of consequences for his family. At least this way, they figured, Mark got to have a peaceful death on his own terms. It's a, as I said, quite disturbing, Mm. thoughtful, eloquent and incendiary piece of journalism because it really does open up the floodgates for who should be legally aided in ending their life and i will link that piece in the show notes thank you mark for speaking with me about such a brilliant piece of journalism another controversial piece of content that i've been fascinated by this week is the scarlet letters (gasps) a web series hosted by amanda knox for Broadly, I really want to watch this. I want you to watch it. I feel like we're a little bit late now to talk about it on the high low because it as as a topic because it came out a few weeks ago. But it is totally the kind of thing that Dolly and I would have, I think, had a real brain dump about. the The premise of this show is and I'm being Amanda Knox here, I was almost convicted of murder because of slut-shaming. To recap, it was posited that Meredith Kircher was killed in a sex game gone wrong with Amanda and her boyfriend, Raffaello. She was eventually exonerated. So Amanda takes this premise of being, you know, falsely accused for being slut-shamed, and she interviews women like Amber Rose, a former stripper who had a relationship with the rappers Kanye West and Wiz Khalifa, who then both dissed her volubly afterwards on the basis of her career. Amanda also goes and interviews a girl who was raped age 14 and left inebriated and unconscious in her freezing front yard and then bullied out of town. Her and her parents had to move. So she goes and talks to her about how slut-shaming ruined her life. It was completely heartbreaking. The premise is very interesting. The choice of host and the blatant PR that she is doing is really uncomfortable to me. She speaks a lot about Meredith and about them being friends, but not once does she say how it felt to find her friend's body, Mm. which had, you know, her throat had been slit. She just talks about how she felt, which is pretty consistent with everything that Amanda Knox has put out there ever since she was convicted. We're gonna insert an excerpt here But do take a listen to the whole thing, regardless of what you think of the host, or even if you just want to watch it for the way Amanda Knox comes across. There's some really interesting stuff in there and it's well produced. I'd also like to add the caveat that this is not me saying that I think Amanda Knox is definitely guilty. She has been found innocent Mm -hmm. and we must allow her to live her life as a woman who has been found innocent. But I just wonder how Meredith's parents feel watching this and whether or not The whole thing is a bit uncomfortably provocative. I don't get to be anonymous ever, ever. And I think that's a
1: thing that people don't think about very often because most people get to be anonymous at least sometime. I don't. I don't get to swipe on Tinder. I don't get to
0: wear a T-shirt with a skull and crossbones on it. I don't get to make a dark joke. I could not be certain that someone befriending me wasn't doing so to get to me. Support for the Hilo comes from the Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From search to email to maps and beyond, it has a history of challenging the norm and finding a better way.
1: Each week Pandora and I cast our eye over the news and look for someone who has challenged the status quo. And this week's winner is Fred, the 10-year-old Labrador from Essex who has adopted nine baby ducklings as his own. Fred is the resident dog at tourist attraction Mount Fitchett Castle. The duckling's mother was nowhere to be found when staff noticed them waddling around alone, but Fred immediately took to them and has been babysitting them ever since. Staff have said that the ducklings have even followed him into the castle moat for a swim, and they sleep in the dog basket with Fred. Mount Fitchett staff have said they expect Fred's babysitting services to last another few weeks, after which the ducklings will be free to stay at the castle or to leave. God, that would be a very teary movie, wouldn't it? If that's the ending.
0: Thank you very much to Fred for making our heart feel as warm and fuzzy as the ducklings themselves. And thank you to our sponsor, Google and the Google Pixel 2, for allowing us to indulge our curiosity always.
1: It's now time for the top line and Charlie I'm going to ask you to insert a song from the Arctic Monkeys new album because it's so bloody good but I didn't want to bore on about it in the intro
2: it was well four stars out of five and that's
0: all Smart traffic lights, designed to halt the stop at the start, traffic will be trialled in September of this year. The lights will be able to advise motorists at what speed to drive at so that they do not need to stop at the lights and will alter themselves in accordance with traffic so as to ease congestion. In the 22nd high school shooting in America this year, 10 people were killed at the Santa Fe High School last week in Texas by 17-year-old student Demetrius Pagotsis. It turns out that we really are obsessed with saying thank you. Scientists have confirmed that Brits express gratitude more than any other nation in the world, thanking people 14% of the time, compared to Russians who thank just 3%. A mother who tricked her 16-year-old daughter into going on holiday to Pakistan and then making her marry a man 16 years older than her, who raped her when she was just 13, is the first woman to be convicted in the UK for forced marriage. The 45-year-old Birmingham-based woman claims that her daughter wanted to go on holiday to Pakistan and never got married, but the now 19-year-old daughter showed social workers photographs of her wedding as proof. Barack and Michelle Obama have signed a multi-million dollar deal with Netflix to create documentaries, film and TV dramas. Their intention, they say, is to cultivate talent, feature inspiring voices and promote greater empathy and understanding between people. The author Philip Roth has died aged 85, reportedly of congestive heart failure. The Pulitzer National Book Award and Man Booker International Prize-winning novelist's work, which includes American Pastoral and I Married a Communist, drew his inspiration from Jewish family life, sex, and American ideals. Stacey Abrams, a former lawmaker and author, has taken a major step towards becoming the first ever African-American female governor of a US state. Stacey is running in the deeply conservative state of Georgia. Boris Johnson has said that he probably needs a plane to help him travel the world and promote the UK's interests. Cabinet members can use the RAF Voyager for official business, but Mr Johnson has said it never seems to be available when he wants it, and also that he doesn't like its grey colour. From one buffoon to another, Donald Trump may extend his visit to the UK in July in order to play golf in Scotland. Trump was due to arrive in the UK after attending a NATO summit, but it is thought that he may choose to avoid meetings in London where he could be confronted by protesters. Dig out your sunscreen and put the Whispering Angel on ice. It's set to be another Scorchio Bank Holiday weekend coming up. Temperatures in parts of the country should hit over 30 degrees, double the average for that time of year, and a temperature that is likely to be a record breaker. And that was the top
2: line.
0: I couldn't record this week's episode of the Hilo without mentioning the referendum in Ireland this Friday. On Friday the 25th of May, two days after we are recording this episode, there will be a referendum in the Republic of Ireland to repeal the Eighth Amendment, which will decide whether or not the country's law on abortion, formerly known as Article 40.3.3 of the Irish Constitution, or the Eighth Amendment, which states that it is currently illegal in Ireland to procure an abortion unless the woman's life
1: is at substantial risk, should be abolished. Although abortion in the UK has been legal since the 1967 Abortion Act, it is currently illegal in the Republic of Ireland. Tensions in the Republic of Ireland are at fever pitch.
0: I watched a really brilliant, useful and rather depressing 23 minute long YouTube video called This Is Ireland, which we will post in the show notes. And I recommend this to anyone and everyone, as it's so important that we understand the devastating history behind this referendum. Here are some of the things that I learned from the documentary. Between 1940 and 1974, 254 children were illegally trafficked out of Ireland to the US for adoption after their mothers were denied abortions. In 2012, Savita Halapanava died from a septic miscarriage after being refused an abortion. In 2013, after pressure from JFM, which stands for Justice for Magdalens, a group which lobbies for the recognition of the government's role in the Magdalene laundries, a home for unmarried and pregnant women who were abused, the TSuch, who is the Prime Minister of Ireland, offered a formal apology. To date, between the years of 1942 and 1990, 1,500 women were given symphysiotomies without consent. A symphysiotomy is a brutal alternative to the caesarean, which is seen as a form of birth control by some people, and it involves breaking the pelvis with a hacksaw in order to deliver a baby, and it causes irreparable damage to the woman's body. 2014 saw the case of Miss Y, a migrant seeking asylum in Ireland who was pregnant due to rape. Despite being suicidal and on suicide watch, Miss Y was refused an abortion. Last year, it was confirmed that the remains of 796 babies had been found in the grounds of Bon Secours mother and baby home in County Galway. The nuns who ran the home had kept the death certificates, private and the mortality rates in the Bonsecours home and other um, mother and baby homes is said to be four times the national average. The TSuch again apologised for the poor care given to vulnerable young unmarried mothers and their children during that time. There have been numerous pro-choice rallies in the last decade, with the most recent rally on International Women's Day. Two days later, there was a pro-life march. That is just some of the really arresting historical fact that I learned from this documentary. And I personally had never even heard Mm.
1: of a symphysiotomy before Mm. I'd watched that documentary. I interviewed Marianne Keyes last month, who, like many Irish women in the public eye, have done the very useful thing of being incredibly vocal about their opinions on the desperate need to repeal the Eighth Amendment. She actually included a storyline covering the subject in her latest novel, The Break, and she told me something that haunted me ever since I heard it, and I think it really gets to the crux of why this law is so completely barbaric as it stands. She told me that if as a woman you're raped and you take the abortion pills illegally in Ireland you will get longer in prison than your rapist would. I mean abortion is a flammable topic we understand that but
0: we are both firmly and unapologetically stating here that we believe in a woman's legal right to an abortion so many of the atrocities to women happen in countries that deny women legal abortions often very sadly Catholic countries as you can see from the creation of the symphysiotomy for example or in the tragic death of Savita, an abortion ban is not just about refusing to let a woman who doesn't want her baby to have an abortion access to abortion saves lives and it prevents women's bodies from quite
1: literally being cleaved in two. As Pandora says abortion is a flammable topic what many pro-choice campaigners urge us to remember when we're having these discussions is that it's not that the life of a fetus should be entirely disregarded or treated with any sort of casual contempt but the life of the mother, the person living on earth right now, the physical health mental well-being, ability and future of that human has to be the more important thing.
0: As one Hilo listener named Amber put it, Abortion happens among Irish women every single day, but sadly these women are exported like cattle to the UK. She recommends the Twitter account In Her Shoes, which is a first-hand account of the painful journeys that many Irish women are forced to take to the UK to receive abortions. The influence of social media, as ever, is key in this vote. There have been fears that online ads will turn the referendum into Brexit, with over 900 paid-for ads to date, many of them funded by foreign money. Russia? Trump? Anyone? Relating to the Eighth Amendment. Companies such as Facebook have made the unprecedented move to restrict and remove any ads that concern the vote, whether or not they are
1: pro-choice or pro-life. There's been so much good commentary and very honest commentary around the referendum. A standout piece for me which really gets to the reality of what it is to be a woman in Ireland and have to do a long expensive journey to England to travel for an abortion or carry a dying fetus or carry the child of your rapist is a piece by Janice Turner for The Times. It's an exceptionally powerful investigation and I'm going to read a segment here which tells one of these women's stories. Some have suffered extraordinary pain, such as 32-year-old Jennifer Ryan, who I meet at her home in Kiltipper, on the rural edge of Dublin, as her youngest children run around the kitchen fighting over Paw Patrol toys. At 22 weeks into Ryan's second pregnancy, doctors discovered that her baby had spina bifida, unformed kidneys, and lungs that could develop no further. She could never take a breath. Moreover, scant amniotic fluid left the baby unprotected. I was damaging her every time I turned over in bed. I could feel kicks. It was horrific to think she was suffering because of me, Ryan says. Yet the fetal heartbeat was strong. This baby was likely to survive to term. Doctors offered to scan Ryan every week, but could induce her only if the heartbeat stopped, or she could travel. Using their €3,000 savings, Ryan, a medical secretary, and her husband took the ferry to Holyhead, then drove through the night to Liverpool Women's Hospital. A few hours later, exhausted, bleeding and distressed, she took home, in a tiny coffin, the baby she called Jess. that's awful. Mm.
0: It's absolutely devastating, and I'm sure I can't be the only person who listening to Dolly read that is very upset. Caroline Donoghue, a writer for The Pool, whose debut novel Promising Young Women, I'm currently reading, wrote a piece last month where she said... In 2015, thousands of Irish expats flocked home to vote in favour of marriage equality and our backs have justifiably been worn out from patting ourselves ever since. Aren't we a civilised nation? Aren't we adorably left-wing? Just look at us! What was formerly thought of as the most conservative, God-fearing country in the Western world has declared that hashtag love is love and for once is on the right side of history. It's now three years later and, with exactly one month to go, you would be forgiven for thinking that the referendum to legalise abortion in Ireland is a shoo-in, that Ireland is ready to repeal the Eighth Amendment. But to underestimate the bone-deep conservatism alive in Ireland is to do its women a serious injustice. This is the country that as recently as 1995 passed divorce into law by a minute margin of 50.28% to 49.72%. On my last trip home two weeks ago, I felt my skin prickle and tighten on the drive from cork airport to my family home i saw hundreds of photos of wombs and fetuses lining the leafy suburbs that i grew up in i spoke to successful city dwelling gen Xers who smiled tightly and said they would rather
1: not discuss it we rung up caroline to talk to her a little more about why the referendum is so important
2: i think what a lot of uk women don't really appreciate is how when you grow up in Ireland or Northern Ireland as well, obviously when you're a teenager, you're obsessed with sex anyway, but you always have this sort of pendulum hanging over you that if you did have sex and sort of the worst in in your head as a teenager happened, that you would have to travel, that that you would have to go on this like perilous journey that you've heard of so many other women going on. And so I think that's why so many of us feel so incredibly impassioned Um, for this referendum, to repeal this amendment that forces us to travel. That's why it's so deeply personal to us, because it's this thing that has been hanging over us, you know, like a dagger our entire lives. Most of the women that I knew went to London. A lot of people go to Liverpool. London and Liverpool tend to be the biggest places. And I think the stat is about nine women a day make that journey. And that, of course, doesn't count the women who have to procure abortion tablets illegally online, which is many more because they can't afford travel. It absolutely is a class issue. And I think there is a certain thing where like working class women are expected to grin and bear pregnancy because perhaps they come from a tradition where maybe their mother had more kids than she was technically, emotionally and physically able to have. Whereas nice middle-class girls can, you know, take a weekend in London and catch a Mis while they're at it. You know what I mean? This is horrible idea that, yeah, it's only for a certain kind of woman, when really all levels of women of every society need to have access to this, you know? What I will say about um, Together for Yes and all of the people that I've spoken to, what is so abundantly clear is that they have learned from Brexit, they have learned from Clinton's loss. They know, they've seen like what happens when people get too cozy and pander to their own base and they are not doing that on any level. They are literally knocking on doors and having those really difficult conversations with the generation of Irish people who just cannot get past the idea that a pregnancy is a baby and a, killing a baby is wrong. It's not a question of whether or not you believe in abortions, it's whether or not you believe in safe abortions and legal abortions. And I think that's what people need to realise the most, is that these abortions are happening anyway. It's just whether or not you believe that somebody who's made that choice deserves the financial and physical punishment of having to go abroad to do it.
1: Thank you so much to Caroline for speaking with us.
0: Polls have indicated that a yes to repeal the amendment is marginally more likely, but it's close. We implore anyone who can vote to vote. Ireland and your women, we are thinking of you. for the Hilo comes from the delicious, the effervescent, the inimitably chic Moet and Shandon. This June Moet is opening the Moet Summer House, a unique concept blending a private members club with Moet and Shandon's renowned
1: spirit of generosity. The Summer House will open its doors from Friday June 8th to Sunday June 10th with a weekend of events from acoustic performances and DJ sets to supper clubs from renowned chefs, poetry readings and even a live podcast from us.
0: Other highlights include a piece of ballet directed by world-famous ballet dancer Eric Underwood, a roast dinner with Michelin-starred Jason Atherton, DJ sets by Josephine de la Baume, live music from Nick Mulvey, and a pub quiz with Jack
1: Guinness. At 5.43 each day, and this is my favourite bit, Moet will host a generosity moment, offering a complimentary glass of champagne to each member in the house. Claude Mert, the founder of Mert and Shandon, had the dream to share the magic of Mert with the world, with a renowned spirit of generosity which the 543 moment will echo for 2018.
0: Mert are offering complimentary membership for all, so be sure to register for tickets now at www.mertsummerhouse.com. Thank you very much to Mert
1: and Shandon. Now. We resisted, and we resisted, and we resisted. We never thought the day would come where we would be talking about it on the high-low. Only at the end of last week, in fact, did I proclaim to Pandora that I didn't give a shit about it. That I'd tried, but somehow I still couldn't stir up one singular shit to give. And yet, come Saturday morning at around 11am, lying in bed with a cold, I decided to stick on the Royal Wedding. And my God! I was absolutely hooked. I was so hooked, in fact, that I had to carry the laptop around my flat so I could keep watching it as I made tea, had a shower and dried my hair. Blow me down, I had royal wedding fever. Blow you down, indeed. I was in France for another wedding, so I didn't plan on
0: engaging with the proceedings at all. I'd speculated for about three seconds on what Meghan would wear for last week's Evening Standard, but other than that, I hadn't been very interested. Oh, God, I was hooked too. The guest list. Oprah. Idris Elba. Sashing in Serena Williams with about five <laughs> kilograms of ice around her neck.
1: I'll tell you where I was toast. It was the minute that Harry walked out of the people carrier that arrived at the church, which many have claimed looked a lot like Nadison Lee. And if that is true, then he is a baller. I immediately started crying and I don't think I stopped crying actually until the end of the coverage. I think it's something about the depth of the history that we have with that family, particularly with those two princes, India Night's Sunday Times magazine column summarised it beautifully. She said, for those of us who remember the scared looking red-haired boy following his mother's coffin, the predictable unravelling that followed in his teenage years, and the quasi-miraculous rebirth of Harry after he joined the army, yesterday was a joyful and triumphant culmination. There can't be a person in the land, royalist or republican, who wouldn't be delighted that Harry has found what appears to be deep and genuine happiness. Also, he and his bride are clearly completely into each other.
0: They are really into each other. My God, did Instagram... Like, melt into a puddle mm. on how into each other. We're all are.
1: desperate romantics. That's what moments like this prove to me. That's everyone went mad for it. I love that piece by
0: India. I ripped it out of the magazine because, yes, I get my papers delivered and I'm old school and I think I have the <laughs> clipping on my desk here. <laughs> Another favourite bit for me by India was this they are the first woke royals their sensibilities are fully 21st century it's as if there has been a huge and sudden evolutionary leap and harry and megan are full of bipeds whilst the rest of the royal family are still crouching along bent in half
1: pandora and i actually haven't done the recap with each other yet we've been saving it for today so i'm going to tell you hot off the press my personal highlights in no particular order they were first of all Kirsty young doing the uh commentating Obviously, I'm biased uh, as I'm a Desert Island Discs obsessive, but I think she tonally just got it so right. And I think she's perfect for those big national events. I thought she was really warm and relaxed. And she said what I'm sure many were thinking. I thought she was just great. Fergie's arrival. I'm a massive fan of Sarah Ferguson. I feel like she's my spirit animal if I were in the uh, royal family. And that felt like a bit of a comeback, (laughs) I felt, as she sauntered into the West Wing. And the Alessandra Rich polka dot navy dress with the white collar, that everyone was tweeting about, uh, which one of Megan's friends, who I think uh, was from Suits, was wearing. That was another highlight for me. Just as a side note, uh, the journalist and friend of the Hilo, uh, Sophie Wilkinson, tweeted saying, Can you imagine if Megan had, instead of acting in Suits, been in something a little bit more high profile? Can you imagine if it had been Mad Men? What those pews would have been like at the front.
0: Suits is huge in the US and Canada. Uh, it's just you huge. love Suits, you? It's just don't you, don't you, you that thinks it's like sort of Emma Dale in corporate wear. <laughs> Um, yes that outfit was exactly the one on my mind Alessandra Rich actually made my going away outfit for my own wedding and I know this
1: isn't about me or my wedding but you know just to shoehorn that nugget of information in that's not like a bride to do that um I think the standout guest of the whole thing had to be Oprah. It can't get better than Oprah. Although people were very concerned about the fact she arrived, I think, three hours earlier, and where could she have a wee? I got quite, <laughs> I got quite obsessed with Hashtag thinking. let Oprah pee. I got quite obsessed with thinking about the table plans, and I decided my dream configuration would be Oprah Winfrey next to John Major. Next to Chloe Madeley, <laughs> Oprah and Chloe
0: Maidley at the same events when two worlds collide... <laughs> I also loved Queenie's fluoro suit, it's very Balenciaga, She's- on trend these days the Queen not as much on trend as Princess Diana who would have worn that polka dot Alessandra Rich dress in mm, a heartbeat mm. and oh god on the subject of Princess Diana wasn't it sweet that Meghan's something blue was Diana's blue
1: cocktail ring yeah it was lovely there were so many nods to Diana I felt throughout the day and speaking of sweet I could not deal with Prince Harry mouthing thanks par to Prince Charles as he gave Meghan away I was a total mess again I also loved Doria Meghan's mother um, I was watching her throughout the service she seems like a really kind of graceful gracious woman and of course the bishop michael curry who we will have to speak about in more detail in a moment (laughs) my only low moment that old jacket that harry was wearing what did you think of that well they sort of have to wear that completely bizarre military get-up don't they but it didn't even look military those old flappy bits on it it looked like you know the shape of water the fish i thought where's the meme? Find me the meme. Find me the meme.
0: My favourite bit were the Suits cast, who were so brilliantly uncool and boasty and gauche about the whole thing. Despite the social media ban, numerous stars Instagrammed themselves in um, outside, being like, lovely day in Windsor. <laughs> the star of the show, Patrick J. Adams, was Instagramming the front cover of The Times with Megan on it with his morning breakfast, and he also Instagrammed him and his wife at Windsor Castle, whilst the other star, Gabriel Mashed, hash- Hashtagged his pictures, hashtag Royal Wedding, hashtag Meghan Markle, hashtag Prince Harry, <laughs> lest anyone be unsure of where they were. That's hilarious. Um, as for Meghan's dress, I was pretty into her choice. Claire Wake Keller for Givenchy it's very, very cool. It's not cheesy or princessy, as some have suggested that engagement picture was. Maybe she learned from that engagement picture. I don't know, it was very princess, wasn't it? That mm. the engagement, the £56,000 dress by Ralph and Russo. My Instagram feed seemed obsessed with her choice. The stella mccartney for the evening was also pretty chic, but to be honest wasn't
1: that into the dresses just very into the guests what did you make of um bishy michael cuzza <laughs> because he really seems to have divided people it was apparently according to the independent it was the most tweeted about moment of the of the whole royal wedding was i sermon. i imagine it was probably
0: the most tweeted was it trending on twitter numero uno Uh, yeah I think so I think it must be I absolutely love him his speech was in fact referenced during the vicar's speech at the wedding I attended in France in that it was something to aspire to oh that's nice I think it's really cool that he was allowed to do that wedding I sort of think they'd insist on having some like really ancient sort of hairy nosed royal family
1: stamped (laughs) vicar Uh, For those who didn't follow uh, this as forensically as us, uh, Michael Curry is head of the Episcopal Church in America. I, like you, completely loved him. I know a lot of people have said it was too much or it was too emotional or it was embarrassing. You know, one, one moment he was... He was grabbing the lectern so passionately that the candles were sort of shaking. Um, But I think that this is an institution that really needs to be slapped around the face with a bit of embarrassing emotion. I think that's what real life is all about. And I thought that he was very passionate. I loved the message of his sermon, which is about the kind of transformative power of love. I thought it was engaging and I thought it was funny. I would have loved to have gone to a wedding and listened to that sermon. You know, the amount of weddings you go to where it's some hairy-nosed, rambling old man (laughs) blithering on about nothing the congregation believes in for half an hour and everyone falls asleep. I think he made it really human and very modern and I loved it. And I can't bear this sort of buttocks clenched... Downton Abbey discourse about appropriateness. you love
0: Downton Abbey.
1: I love Downton Abbey in its own time. I just find that not sort of... Not for now. I just find it so cringy and antiquated. Also, I've noticed because obviously as well as watching it live, I, I watched the BBC coverage later. You
0: like this with Glastonbury?
1: No, I'm not like this. I don't know what happened to me. Something took hold of me with Harry and Meghan. Um, but they in the coverage, they've cut the sermon down by about half and they've taken out all the cutaways to the royal family giggling which again I sort of loved because I thought it was very human and it made them seem like more of a normal family Speaking
0: of faces have you seen that um, the actor that plays Lewis Litt in Suits has had to clarify why he looked so disgusted during the service I know So there's an amazing picture of he's this quite um, characterful looking bald man Mm. and he's pulling this face and he then went on to twitter to clear up why he was pulling this face and he said again just love how deeply gauche the scenes cast are he was like i was pulling that face because someone had halitosis (laughs) oh my
1: god this is hilarious
0: let's insert an excerpt of um michael curry's speech here for anyone that didn't get to enjoy it live
2: let us love one another because love is of god and those who love are born of God and know God. Those who do not love, do not know God. Why? For God is love. There's power in love. For love, it's as strong as death.
1: There are so many other fun things that I want to talk about. You could go on for days, let's be honest. I could go on for days. I want to talk about Camilla Parker Bowles' extraordinary hat. Always extraordinary hats.
0: Do you not remember poor Princess Beatrice's lobster? Philip Tracy Lobster at the last royal wedding.
1: And again, the memes that came out of that... Well, that was the real star of the last wedding. That was the breakout star, was her hat. I think it, Well, it well, looked... was an Oprah, so it had to be her hat. I think she looked very chic, actually, for this wedding. Um, apparently, George Clooney sounds like he was the sort of loud American wedding guest from hell from the insider reports at the reception. What were the insider reports at the reception? Apparently, he got behind the bar and started serving guests his own brand of tequila, which I didn't even know existed. yeah. Yes. successful yeah well he sounds like a sort of nightmare guest but oh my god Amal Clooney looked so beautiful didn't she
0: yes but it is quite funny when you I think I saw some tweets or something when they walked in it was a bit like they were the star of the show mm. like they, mm. they walked people
1: are fascinated by them aren't they
0: Yeah, maybe it's not that they walked with the air of people that think they're the star of the show. They just walk with the air of people that consistently are the star of the show. Yeah, exactly, and have
1: that gaze on them. As you said, that Stella McCartney dress that uh, Meghan Markle wore for the evening part of the wedding I thought was so beautiful. I could talk about the amazing Jag E-type that they drove in. I could blither on for hours. But as well as just bad hats and good dresses, there was the fact that in many ways... This felt like a very modern wedding and perhaps a moment of change for the monarchy. Much has been said about the significance of the fact that Meghan Markle is both half black and divorced. And I know, although it seems almost ridiculous to celebrate this as some sort of triumph, because in the real world, you'd hope that these factors wouldn't even be taken into account when marrying someone. But in the world of the royals, where not that long ago, princes and princesses were forbidden from marrying anyone who had been married previously, And often were sentenced to a lifetime of kind of subsequent misery or forced to leave the institution as so many kind of famous examples go I do feel like this is quite a marked change well Wallace Simpson
0: on the subject Mm. of that a piece that I found really interesting which didn't focus on Meghan per se but on the term biracial was actually a long Instagram caption by the ex teen Vogue editor an incredibly astute and chic woman called Elaine Welteroff I'm going to read a bit out please be aware that I have abridged it the whole thing is absolutely worth reading it is the media's sudden embrace of the term biracial that has intrigued me most. It marks a first in my lifetime actually. Think about it. In the case of virtually every other biracial celebrity we know, many of whom have marked historic firsts from President Obama to Halle Berry, the media has always used the term black to describe them. In most cases, they self-identify that way too. Until recently, US consensus forms still ask us to check a box, black or white. This is in spite of awareness of the rise of interracial families globally. With the emergence of Meghan Markle, who could arguably pass as white, we are forced to see the nuance of racial identity and to finally embrace the pronounced existence of mixed race families. On one hand, that to me feels triumphant and necessary. On the other hand, and some might call this cynical, I can't help but wonder if Meghan's skin tone were a few shades deeper or if she had worn her naturally curly hair Would we be making space for her biraciality? Would the royal family have been ready for its first unequivocally black princess? It's something I've thought about before actually, not specifically the term biracial But with all the think pieces about how diverse fashion industry casting is becoming, you know, they say, look at Adwa Abawa, Joan Smalls, Winnie Harlow, people, you know, say and write really excitedly. But these women are all biracial, they are all light skinned. I don't want to wade into a row about racial constructs. It's about how you self-identify, whether you self-identify as black or biracial is entirely your choice. And as Elaine says, race is arguably a social construct in part. But I do think this comment on white passing is quite important on megan being white passing on a lot of mixed race models being light-skinned enough to pass so let's not run before we can walk or pat ourselves on the back for being so progressive as a culture etc etc and i think that's very at the heart
1: of what elaine is saying we received this interesting email from a listener on the same subject as an american and someone who is only half white but like Meghan markle can pass this issue has been on my mind lately my current boss is racist towards all of my co-workers who aren't white she uses a condescending tone reserved only for them refuses to acknowledge their accomplishments and even when they don't need it she constantly suggests they seek out help from white co-workers white co-workers like me she knows I'm not fully white I don't try to hide it why would I and the co-workers I socialize with are primarily not white but I often wonder if my skin and hair were only a few shades darker would my boss treat me as well as she does the majority of my co-workers, who are persons of color are leaving in a month for greener pastures, a bittersweet ending because in our jubilant escape, we are only opening the door to more people who will be subject to our boss's behavior.
0: Yeah, and in her piece, India Knight also writes, it is woke of Harry to marry a feminist divorcee. More specifically, a big part of that wokeness has to do with Meghan's ethnicity. Now you can get carried away a bit here. The fact that mixed heritage Meghan married a British prince doesn't mean that racism is dead or that racial equality has arrived at last, but that equally doesn't mean that her joining the royal family isn't hugely significant. Recent TV and radio interviews have shown that many black and brown girls who had no
1: interest in the royals now feel proud. Yes, that's a sentiment that's very much echoed by fwa Hirsch, who's the author of the brilliant book British, which was out earlier this year, and she was reporting on some of the royal wedding. She wrote a piece to The Guardian about how the wedding was a celebration of blackness, I quote. When Oprah Winfrey entered the chapel at Windsor Castle, one TV anchor joked that for some people it was the moment the real queen arrived. Winfrey's attendance was a reminder that between her and Meghan Markle, the bride whose wedding she had come to watch, perhaps the two most famous women in the world today are of African heritage. At this royal wedding, talented black people were more than adornment. Markle used her wedding to introduce her new peers to blackness. The teenage cellist Sheku Kanemason was framed by flowers as he revealed the depth of talent that made him the first black person to win the BBC Young Musician of the Year award. The Kingdom Gospel Choir sang soul classic Stand By Me, a love song, yes, but one that first rose to fame in the midst of the civil rights movement, becoming a soundtrack to protest and unity in the face of racial injustice. For all the talk about whether Markle is really black, for all the critique of her being white passing or ambivalent about her black heritage, there are certainly black women in America who feel one of their own has entered British royalty.
0: As ever, a full smorgasbord of thoughtful commentary showing that there is not one way to respond to epic sociocultural happenings.
1: And as a full disclaimer, I'm not a royalist. I think the monarchy is a completely knackered and unnecessary thing. But I found Saturday moving and cheering and full of love and also a pretty wonderful thing for the world uh, right now, actually. And now we have to wait at least 20 years for George to get married, which I've worked out means we will be 50 and we will have to do a high-low royal wedding reunion.
0: There's a little bit of royalist in her yet. (laughs) time for
1: Ask the Hilo. Do you want to read out our letter, doll? Hey, Dolly and Pandora. I'm just finishing uni and I'm moving back to London to start my job. I've been dipping my feet in the London dating scene, but it has all been going wrong. The last six dates I had seemed fine at the time, but the guys just didn't reach out to see me again. See, Madame Butterfly. (laughs) Do you have any advice on what to do following a string of bad dates and how to pick myself back up after them? I'm feeling absolutely rubbish.
0: Don't be deterred by the fact that Dolly just mentioned uh, Madam Butterfly <laughs> in response to your predicament.
1: <laughs> All I'm saying is this: this is a very universal thing no, that women feel. Kind Bad of... dating is the pits. Yeah, but I also that these disappearing men. I think this is a very. But can I just say, I know
0: women who have disappeared on men. Do you? Yes, I know women who have ghosted men. I am very good friends with Charlize Theron, and she did it. To <laughs> she did it to Sean Penn. <laughs> What's your advice
1: to this listener?
0: every day i went on until i met my husband pretty much was awful i i think god it's such a blooming cliche but can i just say i love
1: it when you say that to me whenever i've had my heart broken i'm having man trouble or i've had a bad date or i've been ghosted pandora always says to me it was hell until it wasn't and that makes me feel so
0: much better it's not like i was someone that was great at relationships and therefore i've been good at marriage like i can never hold on to anyone So, sounds so pride and prejudice doesn't it me just like digging my nails in marry me marry me and then I finally found someone that would bloody hell um, it's it, oh, it's so hard to give advice because it could be about you I don't know maybe you're coming on too strong or you're expecting too much from these men or equally it could be nothing about you and you've Mm. just picked really like dodgy guys or maybe they're not dodgy it just wasn't the right time for them and they didn't know how to tell you maybe it's just a coincidence it's really really hard to give advice to anyone on their love life but i do think that and this is something that dolly and i have said before and definitely something that we've both experienced personally is you have to feel happy and content and fulfilled in yourself before you're ready to date someone dating someone or meeting someone is never the answer to something you have to feel
1: whole on your own before Mm. you can share that life with someone else i completely agree with pandora without you know we don't really know what the cause of it can be The, the thing i would say is that ghosting really is an epidemic and i think it is. It's something that happens to people all the time where they think that they've had a good date and then and then they never hear from them again. So I wouldn't blame yourself for that because I think that more shows about where we are culturally mm-hmm. and a kind it's of so culture... It's so easy to drop in and out totally, of people's lives now. A culture of irresponsibility and flakiness, basically, that I think millennials and and the younger generation as well are very bad at. The other thing that I would say is I recently interviewed uh, the author of Cat Person, Kristen Rupenian, and her parting words to me when I looked to her to give me advice with the future of heterosexual dating... She said, try not to come to a date with a huge amount of expectation and a romantic ideal of who this person is, how they could potentially change your life and what your story could be together. Because then when it does go wrong, you feel this absolute like huge crushing thing. And a number of times I've had to remind myself, if you've been on one date with someone, and then they ghost you. Fine, that's shitty behaviour. But your world shouldn't be falling apart. If I And a they f- also don't owe argue they don't you owe they only it to are you.
0: Yeah, they only really owe you like a tiny, tiny thing. Yeah. They don't owe you yeah. much. They, sh- they
1: shouldn't ignore you, I think is incredibly cruel. Um But try, I think that's really helped me think about dating. Just think of it as if you were meeting a new buddy, like think, come come with that kind of lightness to it rather than this date could potentially change my life because I think then it can be so crushing when it doesn't work out. And most of the time they won't work out. I think a lot of it is playing mental games with yourself. So
0: rather than counting over the last six dates I had, I never heard from the guy again, see it as in recent times, none of the dates I've had have led to anything you know literally play Mm. mental games with yourself Mm. the the guys I've met recently hasn't been right hasn't gone anywhere
1: and I think that will help you keep positive as well about where you can go and also do remember that if you're that dating is cyclical and I had this when I was dating a lot I would do online dating for a few months it would be really intense and then I'd stop and then if you're not feeling it take a break it's the summer like Go have a barbecue with your mates, go out dancing, get pissed, throw yourself into your, into your work. You don't need to do it if you're not enjoying it. Thank you very much to everyone who wrote into to the Hilo. Thank you very much to everyone who listened to the Hilo.
0: Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps boost us in the ratings. You can email us show at gmail.com or tweet us at show. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>